You know, it's a unique time in the life of our church. I, uh, for those of you here last week, I mentioned this. Um, we are now, right now, this week is officially our sort of, a, a, marks a year of our existence. We're young, we're a little church plant, we are excited about what God is doing in us. God has been so faithful over this past year, we have seen him in remarkable, amazing ways. But this marks a really powerful year. We've had ups and we've had downs, we've had crazies, we've had uh, amazing pictures of God's faithfulness, and it has been quite the adventure. But what we're really able to step into in the next year is, is really what's important to me. How we begin to take God's faithfulness and say, God, we want to be obedient to what you're doing. We want to follow your footsteps. We want to be the church that you're calling us to be. And this is an important time of the year for us, not because we're just moving into Advent, remember all those things, but when we really begin to say, God, what is it that you're calling us to do in 2013? If you were around last year, remember I preached through our vision and talked about all these points and action points and how we're going to get there about worship space and, and things with our Vine kids and community and mission. And I worked through all these things and we laid out a clear plan. And then we said, and now we, we want you to engage in that and think about giving to support this community. And, and we're going to approach that a little bit differently this year. Instead of standing up and saying, okay, well, here's our, our budget. Here's what we're going to do. And we need you to give and, and try and make you feel bad or guilty and, and tell you about why you need to give X number of dollars to meet our goals and those kind of things. I thought we'd approach it a little bit differently. I'm going to continue to teach through the book of Philippians. Because I believe that if you come face-to-face and I come face-to-face with God's word, face-to-face with the call of obedience and eternal perspective, the resources in our life, they just follow. But instead of what I'm going to do is I want to put people up here in your life that can kind of say, this is why I believe God has called me and my family to go all in. And we've really chosen that phrase to approach this kind of season because as a church, this is really what it means for us to move forward. Is It's going to take every one of us as this body of believers to go, God, I'm all in. I believe that you are the God of the universe. There is one Lord, one spirit, one baptism. This picture of Ephesians 5 where there's just one God that we all worship and we are one body. And it's going to take all of us doing it. It's not that we can program well as a church and we can do these things. I mean, we are looking at everything that happens. If you're not engaged in it and I'm not engaged in it, this is not going to happen. So if you want to see things happen, if we want to do ministry and engage in those things together, it's going to be because you and I, that we did this thing together. And it's going to take you saying, Trevor, I'm all in. I'm all in with my heart. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to engage in community. I want to be part of mission. I want to support that. I want to be this. I want to do those things. Because this church, this little body, it needs you. It needs you desperately. This does not work without you. And so what I thought I'd do is that over the next few weeks, I'd invite some people up to tell you about their story and why they're all in. Um, And not just for this particular church, but for the gospel, because I believe that changes all of us. So I invited Kathy Cross to come up and share a little bit about her story and why she believes that God is calling her and her family to go all in as we think about this time in our um, life together. Thank you, Trev. Um, I've already done this once, so I'm kind of going, oh my gosh, what am I going to say now? But Trev called me on Wednesday, and I don't know if you all go through this, but when someone calls you to speak, you just kind of obsess over, like, what am I going to say? How, you know, and it's all supposed to be about me. Um, I'm just going to tell you my story. Um, that's what the Lord said. They're your friends, they're your family. Just tell your story. Um, 16 years ago, my whole life was turned upside down because I went to a Bible study. I had never studied the Bible. I thought it was kind of boring. You know, I just, anyway, a friend invited me and I felt compelled to go. And that was, again, the Lord calling me. And my whole life turned upside down. I realized who God was. I had a little definition of God in my head, my own little made-up God. 
And then understanding who Jesus was and that Jesus is God. And Jesus, as God, died on the cross for me and for my sins was revolutionary. And um, I became very passionate about the Bible, about the Lord. Um, I wanted the whole world to study the Bible, as I told the group before. I wanted to go on Oprah and tell everyone to study the Bible and to go to BSF. Of course, that, that would have fallen flat, I'm sure. But anyway, um, and that's, that's what's so amazing to me about God. Everything is kind of opposite in his kingdom. You know, what we, we perceive as powerful is really just the world and, and the things that we look at that are powerful and, you know, money and education and, and buildings and really his economy, the power is from him. The power is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, then the second time my life got turned upside down, I kind of thought I'd figure church out and became really active and, and thought, you know, it's more of an institution or a business and you had your pastor and all your staff and you paid your dues and they did all the work and you just kind of showed up on Sunday. And I realized from study, from lots and lots and lots of study, especially the book of Acts, that really the, the church is the body of Jesus. And it's not really supposed to be complicated, and it's not a business for sure. And um, when each person becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, God gives them a gift, spiritual gifts. They're not natural. And believe me, the gift he gave me to study and learn and lead and teach, his word is totally not natural. I mean, I was not a studious person in school. I just kind of loved having fun. I was social. And for me to like spend hours studying, but I love it. So I know it's from him. It's, it's the gift. And the gift he gave me needs to be shared. And I think that's what we're talking about when we're, we're all in. We're sharing those spiritual gifts. And God has given every, every believer a gift. And um, he's given us resources. Our Money is not our money. Our homes are not our homes. And um, we, again, need to share. And so my husband and I are all in at the Vine. We um, prayed, oh, God, give us your vision of the church. And we ended up with this. And from the world standpoint, the outside world is, looks kind of weak and small. But it is so powerful because we are reliant upon God. And when we are weak, he is strong. And that's why we're all in. That's why I challenge you all to be all in. Because we are not just building a church. We're building, we're in the kingdom building business. And that's what it's all about. It's not really divine, but it's going out. And, and I believe in the mission so much. I pray that we don't ever, ever stop loving God, loving people, following Jesus taking the gospel to the world with loving well, loving much, <laughs> taking the gospel to the world, to the one, to the city, and to the world. Mm -hmm. I'm, I kind of botched that. But anyway, you get my point. It's all about him. It's all about the gospel. And I challenge you all. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. You know, I can, I can stand up here and tell you all kinds of reasons why we want you to be a part of God's um, 
this church, this God's picture for us. But the reality is that I believe people like Kathy and Rob, who shared last week, their testimonies are contagious. Like, it really, at the end of the day, is about us being the body and saying, God, I want to be used by you. I believe you can use me. And I believe that this church, it needs me. And we've got uh, 10 or 12 folks right now that are going through our new kind of covenant community class that we're telling the same thing to. This is, this is your church, and this church needs you to engage in it. We, we want you to do more than show up on Sunday and walk out the back door. In fact, you really just can't. I mean, this is not a church that's a size where you can just sort of sneak in and sneak out. Someone will see you, okay? So you are going to be found out. And so we want you to think about engaging. On December 2nd, well, here's the thing. We want you to take these pledge cards home. They're in all your chairs if you don't have one already. You can go to our website and download it if you want to do that that way. But we want you to take these home, and we want you to spend a couple weeks praying over it. Just put it on your kitchen table, stick it on the dashboard of your car, wherever you put things. Pray over it. Look at your wife or your husband or your kids or, or maybe just over your own checkbook and just say, God, I, what does it mean for me to go all in? And not just from a financial standpoint, but maybe to make yourself push yourself in a new direction and say, I want to engage in, in mission this year. I want to, to engage in a community or I want to think differently about what I can offer. Instead of saying, what does the church have to give me? God, what can I give you? What does it mean for me to be all in? On December 2nd, we want to fill these out, bring it with you to church, and we're going to make it a part of our worship offering to say, God, it's not about the resources, but this represents my heart that says, God, we're all in. I'm not going to tell you what, to, what to, that number is going to be and, and, and how to make you feel bad about it. I'm just going to say, look, deal with the Lord. Spend time with God and, and just bring this back and be excited about the fact that God, I truly believe that God is going to use this little group of people that are faithful in their desires to love much and love well to impact the world. So big day on, on December 2nd. So take some time and spend some time with it. We'll have a couple more testimonies between now and then to sort of tell you about what God is doing. But I decided to go ahead and keep going through Ephesians. I just think that if I stop and preach four weeks on why you should give your dollars, somehow that gets lost in, you know, once a year we talk about money. I'll talk about money all year, different points in time, and why we give and, and, and the, the heart we should approach it with. But really, right now, we're in the middle of this. So let's deal with God's word, let's open it up, and let's look at what obedience looks like. Because I believe that will impact not only how you give your dollars, which is not my end goal. I don't really care if you give your resources as well. But I want you to give your life to Jesus and everything else will follow. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to jump to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Now I was telling everybody earlier that I'm skipping all the backstory and background with Philippians now. We've been in there four weeks. If you haven't heard it, you can get it online. And we're going to just kind of jump right into the middle of it. And I love the book of Philippians. And it's probably messed me up more than any other book in the Bible because of its call to redefine my definitions of what it means to be alive. The being alive isn't simply about drawing breath and thinking and, and walking and, and completing assignments and raising my children and all that. It has little to do with being alive. But being alive is about finding courage and humility and obedience and saying, Jesus, my entire life exists because of and for you. Everything about me exists because of and for you. And what Paul's doing in this letter as he writes to the Philippians is challenging their definitions of what it means to be alive. And we talked the past two weeks about perspective, about having and living with an eternal perspective, that if we're going to say, Jesus, my life is yours, everything about it belongs to you, we have to have an eternal perspective, and a perspective that says, God, I see the world through your eyes. And not only do we have to have that perspective, we have to be willing to allow that perspective to change the way that we live. It's one thing to see the world differently. It's another thing to say, God, that alters how I live, how I treat people, how I speak, how I give, all those kind of things. Perspective is going to be a backdrop for the whole book. But Paul is shifting gears in chapter 2, moving from perspective to the idea of obedience. And the next three weeks, as we look at the next 18 verses over the course of three weeks, we're going to do it with one principle in mind. All right, And I'm going to share it with you now, and I'll share it with you each week when we gather. And here's the principle. Every single one of us, as followers of Christ, as Christians, as believers, 
want God to show us something new. We want God to reveal new things to us. God, show me how to do this. Reveal this to me. Show me something new. We're always asking God for something new. However, we don't want to be obedient to what we already know. Okay, so here's a principle we're living with. We want God to show us something new, but we don't want to be obedient to what we already know. Now hear me say this. Your growth and maturity in Christ is directly connected to your desire and ability to be obedient to what God has already shown you. These are the principles we're going to work with over the next three weeks. We want God to show us something new. We want what next. We want revelation. And God's saying, I've revealed truth to you. I want you to be obedient to it. If we're going to grow and mature in Christ, it's going to be because we're going to be obedient to what God has already shown us, which is what Paul's going to do. He's not going to open up the doors to some radical new practical theology and new ideas to show the Philippians and turn the worlds upside down. He's going to say the same things to them that he has already said. And he's basically saying, if you want to live obedient, don't look for how to do the next big thing, but instead be faithful with what God has already called you to today. And that's going to change how we look at the word obedience, especially in terms of having an eternal perspective. So if you've got your Bible, flip to chapter 2, and we're going to keep that principle in mind. God, what would it look like if I was actually obedient to what you've already called me to? Philippians chapter 2, before we uh, dive into it, let's take a moment and let's just, uh, let's just pray. God, I thank you for families like the crosses, for women like Kathy, who will say, God, I'm not perfect, um, not even close to it, but I want my life to be used by you. I'm thankful for people that have had their worlds turned upside down in a way that says, God, my old definitions of, of you, of Christians, of church, of all those things has been flipped upside down because you showed me something new. I thank you for their desire as a family to go all in to offer her gifts as a resource for this community and for the kingdom and for kingdom building. Lord, I pray that that would be contagious to us, that hearing someone else's story um, of surrender and of brokenness, uh, God, would be contagious to our own hearts. As we open your word for the next few minutes, God, I pray that you would, would move in us, that you would challenge us with the word obedience, that, God, we wouldn't be looking for new revelation, but instead be saying, God, why can't I be faithful to what you've already shown me? God, teach us about obedience and teach it to us in love. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to move in you this morning, just to reveal truth to you, maybe truth he's already showed you. Just ask God to open your heart. Pray for someone beside you say this every week, be in the habit of praying for other people. There's a lot of people here that you know and a lot of people here that you don't know. Pick one, two, pray for them. Just pray that God would move in them. Make this morning more than about you. God, we pray that you would teach us and we invite you to turn our worlds upside down, as dangerous as that may seem or sound. And we ask this in Jesus' name. So Paul shifts into a new train of thought. Keeping perspective on the side, he's going to shift into this idea of obedience and begin to challenge the Philippians, this gathered group of believers living in this sort of small huddled community, not to some radical new picture, but to some simple truths that he's already taught them and actually run through kind of a consistent line through Paul's letters. And this is what Paul says in the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition 
or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Paul switches his train of thought by not offering some kind of earth-shattering, radical new, unbelievable thing. He actually shares the same thing that he just shared four verses ago, or five verses ago, in the last part of Philippians chapter 1. He actually reiterates an idea of unity that we're going to get to that he did in chapter 1. But he does it in a really interesting way. He actually gets all these followers of Christ from all different backgrounds and walks of life and places and things. He gets them all on the same starting place. He gets them all back to the same central place. Because look at how he does it. It's kind of tricky. He actually says, listen, if any of you, anyone in this that can hear this, that's reading this letter, if any of you have any of these things, all right, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort in his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion. Now, who is a follower of Christ can say no to any of that. So if you're reading this and you're going, okay, let's see, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and oh, you know what? I don't have any encouragement from being united with Christ. In fact, I find it very discouraging. I don't have any comfort from his love. I'm very, I, don't, I don't love his love. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like it. I don't want any fellowship with the Spirit. I'm not tender, and I'm not compassionate. I'm mean, and I'm angry. Nobody. One of those you're going to have to cave in on. One of those you're going to have to be like, you know what? I am kind of encouraged that Jesus loves me, and I'm a disaster. Okay, I, uh, I'm kind of encouraged that, uh, you know, this and that. Or I do find a little bit of joy here. Or I do have a little bit of tenderness and compassion when I see a, a crying child, right, or a whining baby. It makes me sad. Okay, I've got, okay, all these, I've got one. So Paul basically, what he's doing is he's saying, you cannot escape what I'm getting ready to tell you. Because what was happening in the early church is that some people were saying, these, some of these things that are happening are a little bit beneath me. I mean, here I am, a Jewish person. I've been raised this way. I've been educated. I've been all these things. And then these sort of small teachings, well, they don't really apply to me. And so they could pick and choose what they wanted based on where they were in life. And if it had to do with the Gentiles, not to pay attention to it, or you were this, or you were pagan. The church was splitting and dividing with all these things. And people could kind of fold their arms and go, that's not really for me. So what Paul does is he gets everybody on the same page. And he goes, okay, I just talked about unity and you didn't get it. So I'm going to tell it to you one more time to make sure you get it. And that is if you can name any of these things in your life, then I'm talking to you. So every single one of us in this room is in that category where you cannot escape one of these things, if not all of them. You are encouraged from being united with Christ, comforted by his love, fellowship in his spirit, tenderness and compassion. All of us are on the same page. So Paul says, now listen, listen to me. If you have any of those things, this word is for you. Make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and purpose. Paul goes back to unity. He follows it back up by saying, listen, unity is important. And it's a really interesting idea because five verses ago, we watched Paul do the same thing with unity. And it linked last week, I sort of explored it. And I actually thought about kind of skipping over it and going, hey, we talked about it last week. You know, hopefully you caught on to that. But I think it's important enough that we need to revisit it. Because Paul's on to something. And so I started thumbing through Paul's letters. And I was looking at the Corinthians letter. I was looking at the Ephesians letter and the Galatians and these things. And I started to see that there was a trend that Paul talks about unity throughout every single one of his letters. The church in Corinth was divided. So the book of 1 Corinthians, the whole first four chapters are really devoted to not fighting, not quarreling, being one. That little slide that we showed that had all in, all those things, one Lord, one baptism, all that stuff comes from Ephesians chapter 5, oneness. All through Paul's letters, there's a theme or a trace of unity. And so I started asking why. Why is unity so important to Paul? Why is it so important in Scripture? 
Because if Paul's talking about it to all of these churches, and he reiterates it here over and over again, he's going to do it again in chapter 3. What's the why question? Well, Paul knew something that I think we need to pay attention to, and that's this. Paul knew that dissension in the body, in the church, and not the particular church defined by walls, but the dissension in the church, big C, um, was incredibly dangerous. You see, the church has a mission. That mission it can be defined by a lot of things, but really can be summed up in things like taking the gospel to all the nations, caring for those in need, loving the fatherless and the widow, um, nurturing and caring and raising up and maturing believers, fighting for those that can't fight for themselves. The church has a mission. It has a purpose. It exists for a reason. God uses the church to push his kingdom purpose into the world. The Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. God uses the church, the gathering, the ecclesia, as we've talked about, to propagate and move the kingdom purpose. And Paul knew that the church, when divided or when living in divisiveness, was going to be rendered ineffective. That when the church was living with splits, with factions, with dissension, it would be rendered ineffective. And you know this from your own life. When pressure happens at home, When things get tight, when things go bad, what's your natural inclination? It is to gather what is yours and fight for that, right? Maybe it's even just me. I'm going to take care of myself because times are tough and it is lean and I'm doing this. And our natural, natural reaction is to do that. The early church was a pressure cooker. It was a pressure cooker of needs, of persecution. I mean, at every moment, things were tough. And the natural reaction of sinful humans is to take care of their own. Hey, life got hard. We are threatened by the Romans. We're being pushed by this. Whatever it is, I grab mine and I take care of me. And we say, this is about me. And Paul knew that as soon as we did that, it was going to be the threat to unity. Because when we begin to fight for ourselves, when we begin to think about me and what you owe me and what's mine, I no longer am about the mission of the church, but I'm about my mission and my agenda. And so what Paul's saying is that, listen, if any of you in this room have any of these things, which all of us do, compassion and tenderness, and and we're we're encouraged, any of those things by Christ, then make my joy, Paul's joy, complete and be like-minded. Now, Paul didn't think that everyone was going to, he said be like-minded. He didn't think that everyone was going to be the same, like we were a bunch of hand-holding, kumbaya singing robots. Everything's perfect. He's not thinking that at all. But he's saying be like-minded in our purpose. See, Paul knew that if we were united in our purpose, we would be effective for the kingdom. Have you ever been a part of a church that has had a fighting or split or is struggling from the inside out? The first thing to go is the church's effectiveness. When the church begins, not just a particular church, you can label denominations, whatever. When they have focuses that draw their attention inward, they become ineffective. And Paul knew this, and he knew this well. And so he says, listen, make my joy complete. Be about unity. And And it made me think about this. It made me think about... What am I doing to bring about unity in the church? What are you doing? If you have a negative energy or a, not, you know, a negative mindset, or you're a gossiper, and you walk in these doors or any of those doors, or you sit around with other believers in your home, and you begin to talk about people, talk about what's wrong and how it's not working, and complain and do all those things, are you adding to the unity of the church? Maybe you do it about other churches. Maybe you sit over there on your Sunday and you talk about how bad life church is at this and why we would never go there and all those kind of things or this church over there and what they do. The church, big C, not little walls here, big C, it's about unity. There are people over there that are meeting Jesus. We should be excited about that. I talked all about it last week. Make my joy complete. Be like-minded, having the same love. You all should be about the unity of the church. If you're not striving and fighting for the church's unity, 
then I venture to say you're probably pushing against it. Listen to verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So Paul says, look, be about unity. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. That idea of, uh, of selfish ambition is an interesting one. It comes from the Greek word eretheia, which actually doesn't mean selfish ambition. It actually is a word that refers to a day laborer. So someone that um, actually gets hired to do a job for a day gets paid and then they're done. So, you know, you're familiar with the idea of, of day labor, working for a day. You need someone to put some stuff in your house, uh, you know, build a fence, whatever. You hire them for the day and they work on the fence and you pay them and they're done. And maybe you hire them again the next day, maybe you don't. That word eretheia was actually a word that was referred to a day laborer. And in antiquity, even before the New Testament was kind of written, those letters were written, it was a word that was commonly used in Greek culture because it referred to someone that went out and got paid. And over time, it began to carry with it a really negative connotation because in that culture, it wasn't just about working to earn money. Work was a matter of character, um, a matter of working for the good of the community. Um, having a good work ethic was really important. It wasn't just about making a dollar, making a wage. <clears throat> and so the word Arathea became associated with a day laborer who was only out to get something for themselves. So the only reason I'm going to work today is because I need my $20. And so I'm going to work and I'm going to dig that hole or I'm going to put up that fence or I'm going to do whatever it is. I'm going to paint that house to get my $20. My means, or my means is to work to get to that end, and that's all I care about. I don't care about finishing the job or necessarily doing it super well. I just want to get paid. So that connotation of Arathea got associated with a day laborer that was only pursuing their own ends. Soon thereafter, got associated with politics, people that were just about promoting themselves at all costs. I don't really care what goes on the inside, but what I want you to see is an image that's something different. So what Paul's saying is he's saying, he's saying, listen, do nothing out of Arathea, or out of that selfish ambition that says, this is about me, about the promotion of me, about getting mine. And we are so guilty of this in the church. We walk into churches and we say, what do you have to offer me? I mean, I've got these needs, and I want to know how you're going to meet them. And we look at the church as a means to the ends in our life. Instead of saying, what can I offer? What can I do? How can we build this? We walk in and we say, what do you have for this category? What do you have for someone with three kids or four-year-olds? Or what do you have for a single mom? Or what do you have for people in divorce? What do you have for this? Or what do you have for this mission? What do you have to owe me? And then we look at the church and we say, I'm without, you should give. Instead of being able to say, this is not about the ends to my means or my means to the end. But instead saying, God, what can we offer together? So Paul says, look, those of you who are day laborers that are just working for an end, and he said, and those of you that live in vain conceit, and vain conceit is really the idea of if, if, if Arathea is self-promotion, vain conceit is self-glory. It's about pe- want people to see me. I mean, I just want to be visible. I want you to know that I'm, I'm working. It's a person that argues just for the sake of arguing to show you that they know what they're talking about, that they're smart. It's that person that you sat next to in chemistry class that asked you what you got on the test just so you would ask them and they could tell you they got 100. You know that person? It's never me, right, or you, but it was always that other person. And you're like, oh, it was so hard. What'd you, how'd you do? Oh, I got a 75, really? Oh, yeah, and that person goes, well, how did you do? You go, oh, you know, I got 100. Oh, really? Well, you ask, you would be able to tell because I want you to know something about me, right? We give money away in a giant check. You know, we do those kind of things. We want self-glory. Paul says, selfish ambition, erethea, vain conceit are the mortal enemies of unity in the church. And you want to know why? Because they point attention back to you. Back to me. Anything that points attention back to your life is the mortal enemy of unity in the church. 
Anything that's about self-glory and self-promotion, about look what I've done, put my name on this, you know, this is my chair, my pew, I named it, I did all these things, I, pay, I paid for it, I parking spot, whatever, all these things that say this is about me. And we tend to think this is just about people in the church and we never really want to apply it to leadership. But at the end of the day, it really boils down to leadership. We live in a culture that has celebritized worship leaders and pastors and I've been a part of many of my friends are self-promoting gurus, books they've written, things they've done, do this, buy my shirt, websites with my name on linking these things. All, the motives, are, I believe at times are pure and then they get really cloudy. Anything, Erethea, that's about means to my end, self-promotion, self-glory is a moral enemy to unity in the church, which means this, ask yourself, are you doing things for recognition? Are you going to argue with someone theologically just to engage in the argument so that they know that you know systematic theology? Are you going to engage in someone in a way that shows them just what you know? Are you doing something just so people can pat you on the back and say, look what you're doing for the church. You're up here every week cleaning and you're giving all these people away, things away and you do this and you hold doors and you, what about you make coffee? Boy, you are really doing it. Is that the motive that drives you? Are you looking for that? Are you mad when no one recognizes you? You've got to ask yourself about what's driving those. Paul goes on to say this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, erethea, or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. This isn't sort of like a false call to be like, oh, everybody in the world is better than me. Like they are smarter and faster and better looking, and I am ugly and slow and worthless. It's not actually saying that everybody is better than you, which I think is that sort of false humility where you're like, I'm the worst of the worst. The reality of what Paul's saying is it's about loving like Jesus loves. It's about ascribing worth to people. There are people in this world that are not as smart as you. That is just the reality. And you can do math really fast. You can do math faster than other people. You can run from here to the back of the room faster than somebody. Not better, faster, smarter. There are people um, that are not quite those things. What Paul says is that we consider other people better. And you want to know why? Because if we're going to love like Jesus, we ascribe a place of honor and worthiness to people above ourselves. That's all that really means. It means if you're going to love like Jesus loved, then you have to take people and put them in a place of honor that is in front of you. And for me, this is a very practical way to live, right? Do things that show people that they are worthy of the love of Christ. Hold doors. Go last. Give your seat away. Small things that we say, well, that's, you know, southern gentlemen or chivalry or whatever. No, they're practical ways Christians can live that demonstrate honor to other people. One of the things that makes me crazy is that when we gather as a church or as people or wherever you're going and you're with a large group of people and we got food out there, and who can get first to make sure they don't run out of whatever it is? Part of ascribing people a place of honor is living very practically and saying, you before me, I'll survive. I'll survive. We need to be a part of a church that gives these places to all people. Paul puts no descriptors in there. He doesn't just say, hey, look, the people in your church, the people, he says, everybody, consider others. Anyone, the people you've met, you will meet, or will brush by today, consider them better than you. In other words, give them a place of honor in front of you. Give your seat away, hold doors, show people that they matter, hand someone a plate, look someone in the eye. Practical ways to live like Jesus does. Practical ways to love like Jesus does. Paul goes on, I'm going to wrap all this up. Paul goes on to say this. Each of you should not look to only your own interests, right, but also to the interests of others. Kind of another way of restating what he just said. Your attitude. Why? Because your attitude should be the same as that of Christ 
Jesus, which we're going to really get into next week. There's probably no better week in the world to really come face to face with this kind of call to obedient living than this week. I don't know what your Thanksgiving is like. I don't know if you guys all get together with family and everything tastes like eggnog and everybody smell, you know, whatever smells good and wears nice clothes and Christmas sweaters and whatever, and everything is fun and happy. A lot of us don't live in those categories. For a lot of us, Uncle Joe shows up and he's hammered and we don't even think we're related, right? And then that crazy person comes and we're not really sure why and then somebody takes the last drumstick and all you wanted was a drumstick. You had it since you were seven and somebody took it and you're mad. And that one aunt that you swore you would never talk to comes and she wants you to apologize to her and all of a sudden it gets really messy and you're mad. I mean, my family's kind of nutty too. I mean, my mom remarried after my father died and, and she married this wonderful guy who loves Jesus and he's the head of the physics department at the University of Texas and he always brings his PhD students to Thanksgiving. And, and no stereotypes, they are all, all 15 or so of them, are all Asians from either China or, um, or usually South Korea, Philippines, and none of them speak any English. And he brings them all Thanksgiving. We're all sitting at the table staring at each other. And it's about as awkward as you've ever experienced in your life. Because they don't have any idea what you're doing. You know, pilgrims and turkeys and things like that. And they're staring at you, and no one can speak any the same language. So you're just going, you all right? Potatoes? You got it? No? The reality is, life is messy. Life is messy. You can choose to decide how you're going to live this week especially, and that could carry us through. Because here's the truth. Every one of us wants something new from God, but none of us want to live and practice the things that God has already called us to. Paul doesn't say anything new. He actually reiterates the same things. Live in a way that brings about unity in the church, and do it by not being about self-promotion and self-glory, but do it in a way that gives your life away so that you will think and love and live like Jesus. Don't start looking to God to give you brand new things until you're willing to be obedient to the ones he's already placed in front of you. If you need to love somebody well this week, then suck it up and love them well. If you need to go last this week, then do that. If you need to ignore your brother-in-law, ignore him. Love him. Don't fire back. Don't show them what you've done. Don't be about self-glory. Instead, say, God, I want you to be known because my goal, my striving is to be obedient to what you already showed me, and it's that simple, to love to think and to love and to live like Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the moments to gather here.